Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Okay, uh, Tracy, there have always been situations where people have been in need of immediate medical care. (laughs) Yep. That's just part of being a human. Uh, And we spoke recently uh, in an episode about how military needs during wartime have driven a lot of innovation in emergency medicine. But of course, civilians need emergency care as well. And our current pandemic has brought the focus onto the medical care providers who are often doing far more than seems humanly possible to take care of their patients. And as I continued to see headlines specifically about how to know when to seek emergency care during this time, it made me want to talk about some of the really big moments in emergency medicine as a developing field because it's actually still a baby. Um, It's a fairly new uh, area in medicine. And uh, also we want to make sure that in the interest of expectations management, we let everybody know that this is primarily looking at emergency care in the U.S. Uh, We briefly mentioned developments in other countries just here and there. Uh, but that's about it. And even narrowed down mostly to one country, it is still a two-parter, and it is still nowhere near comprehensive. Uh, There are entire books written about the history of emergency care just in the U.S., Uh, but I wanted to talk about it and kind of honor the people that do it. So what we're going to do here is cover some of the key areas and developments in its relatively short history. So in this first episode, we're going to talk about early emergency response services and a little bit of CPR history and the advent of the emergency care specialty for physicians. And then in the next episode, we're going to cover an important white paper that served as a turning point for emergency medicine. Uh, We'll also talk about the advent of the 911 service and the ambulance service that set the model for all of the others. The first city ambulance in the United States started rolling in 1865, and we really don't know a whole lot about it. Records are pretty sparse. But there is a personnel record for an ambulance driver in Cincinnati, Ohio's Commercial Hospital. That person was listed in that year's hospital records. That driver was a man named James R. Jackson, and his annual salary was $360 a year. That is all we know. (laughs) Uh, And because of the scarcity of documentation for whatever that program was in Cincinnati, the ambulance that's more commonly cited as the first city ambulance was in New York City, and it was a new initiative at Bellevue Hospital in 1869. And it was the brainchild of Dr. Edward B. Dalton, who had interned before the U.S. Civil War as a staff surgeon at the hospital. Dalton had served with the Union during the Civil War, working as an inspector of field hospitals for the Army of the Potomac. One of his duties was establishing a system to get wounded soldiers to field hospitals really quickly. He set up a similar system to the one that French doctor and recent show subject Dominique Jean Leray had done in Europe a few decades earlier. And when the war ended, Dalton was back in New York, and then he applied his experience in transporting soldiers to creating a similar service for the civilian population there. Bellevue's new ambulance, which was a horse-drawn wagon, was equipped with a first aid kit that included tourniquets, bandages, sponges, whiskey or brandy, depending on what source you read, and a straitjacket in case a patient was unruly or dangerous. It also had floor slats that could be taken out of the wagon and used as a stretcher. Bellevue's ambulance didn't have a siren. 
the driver would bang a gong as he drove to alert other people on the road to get clear. (laughs) Seems challenging to me. Dalton's ambulance was called to scenes of medical need 1,401 times. Over the years, that number grew, and even as motorized ambulances were developed, and that happened first in Chicago, these horse-drawn wagons of Bellevue still covered their territory alongside their automated colleagues. That went on for years. The last of the horse-drawn ambulances in the fleet was retired in 1924. In 1928, Julian Stanley Wise of Roanoke, Virginia, founded the Roanoke Life Saving and First Aid Crew. And this was the first volunteer rescue unit in the country. It was made up of 10 men, including Wise, and each man carried a fishing tackle box as his med kit. Inside these kits were tannic acid compound, ammonia inhalant, tincture of merthiolate, and poison ivy wash. Um, When I first looked over this, the idea that poison ivy wash uh, would, was included. I, it's obviously very useful to have the poison ivy wash in there. Um, but as like an emergency thing, uh, that that delighted me a little bit. <laughs> well, I suspect since they were kind of a first aid crew. Yeah. <laughs> and this is out in Virginia. There was probably a likelihood that people were getting into some poison ivy. Yeah. And- Calling that an emergency, treat it oh, well, early. I, I also do know somebody who had to go to the the emergency room because of a poison ivy exposure because it was um, it was dead vines that they didn't recognize as poison ivy, and they were outside sweating, and it's like they got the oil on their face. It was a whole bad situation. Yeah, I had a. Uh, I didn't go to the emergency room. I went to urgent care. <laughs> uh, I had never been allergic to poison ivy until I came into contact with it at the same time that I had a tattoo that was healing. And my body was oh, like, yes. this is too much. And I kind of dealt with the rash. And then one morning we were actually on vacation and I woke up and my entire face was swollen. And I was oh, like, goodness. get in the car and let's start making <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so Wise's volunteer rescue plan had its start almost 20 years before when Julian was only nine He witnessed a canoeing accident that resulted in two people drowning because the current was quickly carrying these canoeists away from the small amount of help that bystanders were trying to offer. They were basically trying to extend tree branches out there. Uh, The event, he would later say, left an impression on him that just gave him a determination that he carried for the rest of his life. Quote, right then I resolved that I was going to become a lifesaver. Never again would I watch a man die when he could be saved. And as a young man in his 20s, Wise had taken a job at the Norfolk and Western Railroad. He was working as a clerk, and he recruited his fellow volunteer rescuers from his co-workers there at the railroad. And they actually operated their little setup out of the railroad offices, and they used the phone number of the railroad's head clerk, Harry Avis, as their contact number. So when Harry got an emergency call, he would then relay that info to the rest of the crew, and then they would spring into action. This was not a huge success initially. Only six emergencies were called into the crew their first year, and often they weren't speedy enough to do a lot of help by the time they arrived on the scene, but they kept at it. They kept improving, driven by Wise's ethos of, quote, save seconds and you have a better chance of saving a life. The crew gained national attention in 1931 when they revived a 16-year-old boy after responding to a drowning call. 
yeah, they became headline news. And that brings us to the topic of resuscitation. But before we get into that, which we are going to do, let's take a little breather of our own and we will have a sponsor break. So that last uh, element that we talked about of a 16-year-old boy being rescued after a drowning call brings us to resuscitation in general. So the idea of artificially restarting a patient's breathing and heartbeat has been part of emergency medical care for hundreds of years. It goes back at least in the Western uh, literature to Swiss physician Paracelsus in the 1500s. And in those early days, uh, this whole thing was done by using a bellows to pump air into the unconscious person's lungs. They would basically put the end of the bellows in their mouth and then carefully work the bellows. Before that, a common but not super effective approach was to whip an unconscious person in the hopes that it would shock them awake. The earliest Western record of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation being used dates back to 1732, when Scottish surgeon William Tossick was able to revive a coal miner. Eight years later, the French Académie des Sciences issued a recommendation that mouth-to-mouth resuscitation should be used for drowning victims. Four years later, Scotland's Dr. Tossick wrote a clinical description of the mouth-to-mouth method that he had used in 1732. Yeah, when he initially did that, he was kind of improvising (laughs) and trying to figure out a way to save this person. And it wasn't until quite some time later that he actually wrote it up uh, as a way that other people could follow. There was enough concern that people were not getting proper resuscitation attention in the late 18th century that in 1774, the Humane Society for the Recovery of Persons Apparently Drowned was formed. This group was established in London at the Chapter Coffee House in St. Paul's Churchyard by Dr. William Hawes and Dr. Thomas Cogan. The pair had invited a number of friends to help establish this society, which was intended to promote techniques of resuscitation. And they did this by giving awards to people who performed life-saving acts so they could draw a little attention to it. And that society actually continues to this day, although in 1776, the name was changed simply to the Humane Society, and then it changed again in 1787 to the Royal Humane Society. In the 1850s, two different doctors in London came up with methodologies for resuscitation having to do with repositioning the body. Dr. Marshall Hall wrote up his method in his book, Asphyxia, Its Rationale, and Its Remedy. Basically, he was encouraging people to roll an unconscious person off their back and onto their side in an effort to eliminate any airway obstructions. And in some cases, rolling farther onto the stomach was recommended. Eventually, Hall refined his technique to include the application of pressure to the chest. Two years later, Dr. Henry Sylvester developed an idea along a similar line of thinking, that repositioning the body could help a person breathe. In Sylvester's method, the patient remained on their back, but their arms were manipulated to try to restart respiration. So first, the arms were raised up over the head so the unconscious person's chest would naturally expand. And then the arms were crossed and placed over the chest to provide pressure to encourage exhalation. In 1859, Dr. Sylvester published his method in the British Medical Journal. He was met with some criticism, primarily that if a patient remained on their back, their tongue could still obstruct the airway. 
Just the same, this method was widely touted for decades. It was published as a recommended resuscitation technique in the Handbook Describing AIDS for Cases of Injuries or Sudden Illness that was written by Surgeon Major Peter Shepard of the training organization St. John Ambulance in 1878, and it remained in every subsequent printing of that handbook until 1972. There were other resuscitation methods being tested during the late 1800s, including chest compression, which was tested on cats in Germany in 1878. By 1891, chest compression used alongside ventilation had saved the lives of two human patients in Germany. Compression was also seeing some success first in dogs and then in human cases in the early 1900s in Cleveland, Ohio, as part of the work of Dr. George Kreil. But compression as a means of resuscitation kind of fizzled out until it started to be used in tandem with defibrillation decades later. The Hall and Sylvester methods were eventually replaced by the Holger-Nielsen method, developed by a Danish military physical fitness instructor in the 1930s. During a massage, Nielsen noticed that when he was lying face down and the therapist applied pressure between his shoulder blades while standing at his head, he exhaled involuntarily. So he combined this idea with positioning the patient's arms crossed above them with their head turned sideways and resting on their arms. So yeah, he would basically, it's almost like you would lie down like in the sun at the beach on your stomach if you did such things, like with your head resting in your arms and then from above and in front of your head, he would apply compressions at a regular period. In 1956, a big breakthrough in emergency medicine came when Dr. Peter Safar, an Austrian-born physician, met Dr. James Elam at a convention of anesthesiologists. Two years earlier, Elam had published research proving that expired air, that's the air a person exhales, ventilated in a mask or endotracheal tube, could enable adequate oxygenation to keep a patient's blood gases in normal levels. This meeting led to the two of them working together, and in 1958, he published a paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association outlining experiments that had compared mouth-to-mouth ventilation performed by laypeople to the Holger-Nielsen method that was being performed by members of the Baltimore City Fire Department. Mouth-to-mouth was by far more successful. Yeah, that was like a big deal because it was like, we have professionals doing it the old way, and we have people we just trained off the street doing it our way and they're having better success. Uh, Safar and Elam continued to be at the epicenter of significant developments in resuscitation because they went on to collaborate with other medical scientists who were doing research in similar or related areas. Through a connection to anesthesiologist Bjorn Lind, Safar was introduced to a Norwegian toy maker named Asmund Lerdahl, and in working together, this team was able to develop the first resuscitation mannequin to train people in resuscitation techniques. Resuscitation, or resuscitation Annie, as she is more commonly known here in the U.S., is still produced today by the Lairdahl Medical Company. A separate team, engineers William Kuvenhoven and Guy Knickerbocker from Johns Hopkins, had been developing the first electrical cardiac defibrillator around the same time. Dr. Safar worked on refining the mouth-to-mouth resuscitation technique that he and Elam had come up with and came up with the easy-to-remember ABCs of cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Those ABCs are airway, breathing, and circulation, and the idea was that you would first check to make sure the airway wasn't obstructed and then administer rescue breaths followed by chest compression. 
And that remained the standard and was probably what a lot of us learned. Uh, If you're in my age group, I definitely learned the ABCs uh, when I had a very basic CPR training in high school. We did it until 2010. And at that point, the order of operations recommended was changed for the first time in 40 years. And then it became CAB training with chest compressions beginning first and then doing the airway and rescue breaths. And this is because it has been determined that a patient's circulation can be supported through chest compressions enough to keep oxygenated blood flowing through the tissues. And if that is already in place while the airway check and rescue breathing is done, there is a better chance of success for resuscitation. And we're going to come back, actually, to Dr. Safar in the second part of this two-parter. Coming up, we will find out how a general practitioner's exhaustion led to the developments of the first full-time emergency jobs for physicians. First, we will take a quick sponsor break. In 1961, the idea of doctors who were specifically focused on emergency medicine as their job rather than it being a shift on a rotation for a doctor who normally had other patients and duties, manifested in the work of Dr. James Mills, Jr. Mills was a general practitioner in Alexandria, Virginia, who was the president-elect of the medical staff at Alexandria Hospital. And the Alexandria Hospital's emergency department was really in a state of crisis, a crisis that Mills was tasked with fixing. For one thing, patient visits to the emergency department had increased by 300% in the decades between 1950 and 60. By the end of 1960, they were seeing as many as 18,000 patients a year. That averages out to a little more than 49 a day, and that was in a department that did not have a dedicated medical staff. There had been a plan in place to use medical students from nearby Georgetown to cover shifts, but that didn't quite work out. And Mills was one of several doctors on staff at the hospital who did shifts in the emergency department. But there were a lot of doctors who didn't. They either just didn't want to or it couldn't fit into their schedule. So wait times were getting longer and longer, and the hospital struggled to have enough medical staff on hand to see to their growing emergency patient load. In the meantime... Dr. Mills was really having his own problems. He worked incredibly long hours as a GP. In an interview that he gave in 1965, he said, quote, One night I came home after 1 a.m. from working a day that had started that morning at 7. I remember thinking that as a chronically tired and overworked GP, I wasn't being fair to myself, my family, or my patients. It came to me that in emergency service with regular hours, I would be able to practice much better medicine. If I could get three other good men to join me, we'd have a team that could provide top-notch treatment. And his idea in that moment invented emergency medicine specialization. He recruited three other doctors from the hospital to test this novel idea with him. Dr. John McDade, Dr. C.A. Lowridge, and Dr. William Weaver. And Mills and his colleagues negotiated a deal with the hospital that would both fill the needs of the emergency department and give these doctors a much better work-life balance. From a financial point of view, it was a contract that would give them the same or better income than they had already. The hospital received a subsidy to cover the cost of impoverished patients, and for other patients, they charged $5 a visit. 
But their shifts were really the big revolution here. The emergency department was a small room, essentially, at this point in this hospital. It was just 450 square feet, and it had four stretchers. And to cover that, each doctor worked 12-hour shifts for five days straight. So they would either work midnight to noon or noon to midnight. And then after working five days on this schedule, they would have five days off, which was a completely mind-blowing schedule for any doctor at the time. And it gave them all much more downtime than they had as GPs. But to be clear, although they were very glad to have more time off, of course, the team that Mills had assembled was completely dedicated. They really wanted to make this system work, not just for themselves, but for the hospital staff, the hospital administration, and of course, for the patients. Outside of the economic and life balance drivers, Mills was also motivated by a desire to meet the healthcare needs of Alexandria's impoverished and at-risk population. Because he had taken shifts in the emergency department and because he had done volunteer outreach to provide care to the city's poor, he was keenly aware of two things. First, there was a gap in the system that made it hard for poor and minority communities to get health care. Many of them were turning to the emergency department to fill that gap. Second, he recognized that not having health care contributed to ongoing poverty. So he also wanted, with this move to full-time emergency care, to dedicate as much effort as he could to seeing to the needs of communities that might not ever have access to a regular GP. This effort to make emergency care into its own fully staffed department came to be known as the Alexandria Plan. And the Alexandria Plan got a lot of attention. And that attention came not just from the hospital staff and the community, but also the media and other hospitals who started to wonder if similar organizational structures might work for them. Over the next several years, the emergency department at Alexandria's patient load doubled, and other hospitals soon started to emulate them. Seven years after the beginning of the Alexandria plan, the idea of emergency medicine as a specialty was established enough and demand for specialized training was high enough that the American College of Emergency Physicians was founded. Dr. Mills and his trailblazing colleagues served in key positions within this organization. But in the interim, something else had happened which changed the emergency landscape. On July 30th, 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed a set of Social Security amendments into law, which included provisions for the creation of two important programs, Medicare and Medicaid. So just in case you're not familiar with these two forms of health care coverage, here is a very brief broad strokes rundown. Medicare is federally funded and was initially created to offer coverage to people 65 and older who, in the 1960s insurance market, had a really hard time getting coverage. That program has since expanded to include coverage for people with disabilities and people meeting specific criteria related to end-stage renal disease. The program also added coverage for things like prescription drugs over time. Medicaid's function was and is to provide medical insurance to low-income families and individuals. This is a federal and state program where the federal government subsidizes at least half of the state's costs in providing services to Medicaid beneficiaries. Just as has 
than the case with Medicare, the Medicaid program has evolved over time, and it has expanded to include pregnant women, people with disabilities, and those with long-term care needs in their coverage guidelines. Medicaid is not consistent state to state, though. Each state has leeway to shape the program into what theoretically best suits that state's constituents, and it is also possible for a person to qualify for both programs. So we mentioned a moment ago that the Alexandria Hospital's patient load and the emergency department doubled over the course of several years. And those new programs were a significant driver of that uptick in numbers because more people had insurance coverage. And that meant that there were more cases where people were using the emergency department instead of seeking out a GP for their routine health care needs. In the five years following the legislation that created Medicare and Medicaid, emergency department visits in the U.S. went from 29 million a year to 43 million. And this also created an entirely new problem in terms of poor communities, which was a growing population in cities in the 1960s. Most inner cities had hospitals which were considered urban teaching hospitals. That meant that their emergency departments were staffed by interns and residents, and there were often few or no full-time emergency doctors working there to supervise or guide the department. Naturally, this meant that the poor often received substandard care. Cincinnati residents from the primarily Black neighborhoods around Cincinnati General Hospital became so frustrated with the mediocre care and long wait times at the hospital that a group of demonstrators marched on the facility. Their protest led to meaningful change. To fill the gap in dedicated emergency physicians in the city, the University of Cincinnati started the country's first emergency medicine residency training program. When the program began in 1970, it had only one resident, but it quickly grew. And other cities around the country that had similarly left teaching hospital emergency departments without dedicated full-time physicians also began partnering with their local universities to offer similar programs. Even so, it took almost a full decade for emergency medicine to be recognized as a board-certified specialty by the American Board of Medical Specialties. And that is where we will leave this off for today. Next time, we will kick off by talking about a paper that addressed all the problems in emergency medical care in the U.S. as the need for that care was on the rise. I have, instead of listener mail today, a plea, sort of. Uh, It's Uh not really a plea. Um, It is a request that was put out by the Atlanta History Center. Um, And I saw it, and I think it's a really cool idea because it enables our listeners, particularly if they are in the Atlanta area, to take part in documenting history. They posted a blog at the History Center uh, on the 7th of this month, that's April 2020, Uh, and they are asking for people, because they recognize that we are living through a very unique time, so they are asking for people, particularly Atlanta residents, to send them documentation of how they are living and what is going on. Uh, They have an online donation form. And if you are interested in participating, they're like, you can do this with photo, video, social media posts, your grocery list, uh, lesson plans if you're a teacher, letters, etc., that you can share with them so they will make an archive of what we are living through, which is so cool. Uh, If you want information on this, you can go to atlantahistorycenter.com slash blog slash coronavirus dash collective or you can just go to atlanta history center um and if you just do a search for corona collective it comes up uh i just think it's a really cool thing atlanta is in a weird place this won't air for uh a little bit but 
our restrictions on what businesses can be open have just been uh, shifted to opening a lot of things earlier than anybody anticipated. I hope everybody is still saying very safe. And I really, really hope uh, that they take advantage of this opportunity. If you live in Atlanta, to contribute and make your voice part of this this ongoing record. Uh, they have some specific uh, things that they would love answered from different parts of the community, like if you work in a, a medical profession or if you're a local business owner, et cetera. Uh, and that's all in that, that blog post I referenced. I hope that everybody goes and participates in this from the Atlanta area. If you're not from the Atlanta area, it's worth taking a look at just to think about the kinds of things you're doing in your day-to-day life that might seem mundane or everyday, but are important to document uh, and see if there is a similar program in your area. So again, that's at the AtlantaHistoryCenter.com. There's no the in that. It's just AtlantaHistoryCenter.com. And you can go to their blog and look for it, or you can do a search for Corona Collective. It's a super cool program. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at iHeartRadio.com. You can also find us everywhere on social media as Missed in History. And if you would like to subscribe to the show, we would like that too. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app at Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you listen. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.